I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Rachel Barco. Rachel Barco is the Vice Dean and a professor at New York University's School of Law. And she joins me to discuss how state governors can use their authority to help slow the spread of COVID-19 in prison and jail populations. Around the country, many local governments have responded to the coronavirus outbreak with stay-at-home orders or by enforcing social distancing practices. But very few have had a comparable response to reducing the spread of coronavirus in the incarcerated population, as well as to the jail and prison staff and to their families. Rachel Barco and I discussed a recent report that was published by Data for Progress, which provides a detailed outline for exactly how local governments can act now to slow the spread of COVID-19 in prisons and jails. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Rachel Barco. Rachel Barco, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I think it's become increasingly obvious that, you know, while the coronavirus outbreak is dire generally for the rest of the population, that it's even more dire in the incarcerated population, people who are in prisons and in jails. And, you know, one of the obvious reasons as to why that is, is that you can't socially distance properly in in a prison or in jail. But what are some other factors? Well, you know, you're certainly right that the environment in the these facilities is such that people can't distance themselves, but, you know, they also don't have access to some of the key things that health officials have told us we need to try to stop the spread. So people who are incarcerated often don't have access to soap. You know, they charge in many facilities for soap and people don't have it. They don't have hand sanitizer. Um, They don't have access to easy, easy access to water to even wash their hands. So, you know, the kind of basic hygiene practices that we think of as necessary for prevention aren't things that are accessible there. Um, and then you you add that to the fact that the population of people who are inside these facilities leans toward people with pre-existing health conditions um, and, and very older people who are there as well. So you have a particularly vulnerable population should this spread within the facility. Um, they're more likely to get serious cases and death as a result. Right. That's another factor that I hadn't actually considered, that the percentage of older people in the prison population is it's actually grown quite a bit in the past decade or decade and a half. I think there's something like, what, 12 percent of people who are over age 55? Exactly. You know, and, and, and many even much older than 55, you know, past 60, past 70, the populations that we're, we're most concerned about. Yeah. And, and also they age faster, I think, just generally. Yeah. Yeah. Medical professionals tell us that people who are incarcerated, um, you know, a, a kind of a person who is chronologically age 45 is really more like a 55 five-year-old based on just the harsh conditions of living inside prisons. One of the things we aren't really talking about are the peripheral people who are involved with the population, right? Like the the prison guards or even the doctors and therapists that come in and out of prison. Then, of course, there are the families who are also kind of at risk. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at New York, which is where I'm located right now, there are almost 900 employees of the corrections department who are infected with COVID-19. So staff, the people who work in these facilities are, you know, the it's not as if the virus is going to distinguish between the people who are there because they were convicted of a crime and the people who work there. It's going to spread to everybody. And when we're talking about people who work there getting it, they in turn are going to take it outside the prison walls, back to their homes, back into their communities. And so it's going to be a source of spread to the community at large when we're talking about it spreading within these facilities. And, and in addition to that, thinking about the people within prison facilities who work specifically on 
on medical issues, the medical staff, you know, these are not large uh, numbers of people who do that. And so if you get high rates of infection among the staff who are designated to treat people with inside these facilities, you're really looking at a looming crisis because if they get sick, you know, there aren't people to replace them. And now we don't have people to take care of the people inside who get this. And you can just see how it very quickly can spiral into a crisis. Prison and jail population, I don't think that they're being counted in the current projections for infections and deaths, right? Um, And those projections are kind of scary already. Yeah. So I've seen a couple uh, projections. I believe it's the ACLU has tried to do one to figure out if we did bring into the projections what is happening now in prisons and jails and what it looks like going forward. You know, we, we see exponential growth in terms of the number of people dying and infected when we factor that in, because I don't think the existing models are properly accounting for how much more rapidly the spread of this virus would be inside prison facilities. You know, it would be as if we had an unaccounted for really large proportion of people on cruise ships. And because it spreads so much more rapidly in an environment like that, if your model wasn't accounting for that, you would be undercounting. And I think that is the problem with most of the existing models that are out there is they're not accounting for the much more rapid spread inside a prison and a jail. Right. So so what we've seen generally in relation to the responses, the responses that have kind of been working, and I live in one of the states that's had a really good response. I live in Washington state where Governor Jay Inslee is in charge. We've seen responses on the local level to the outbreak, specifically on the gubernatorial level. Like I said, Jay Inslee, then there is, you know, Governor Cuomo in New York and there's Gretchen Whitmer, you know, all Democratic governors, I should point out. But have any of them responded in a significant way to prevent the spread in prison and jail populations? No, and it's really disappointing. You know, I I think that this isn't one of these left-right Republican Democratic issues. Sadly, it's basically both failing to address what's going on. You know, they're they're at most playing catch up, you know, and at and at best, what we've seen them do is maybe some small numbers of releases, but nothing that is commensurate with the problem and the risk. You know, so here in New York, Governor Cuomo has done nothing to address the fact that we now have more than a thousand people who have COVID-19 in inside our correctional facilities, staff and people incarcerated both. And he hasn't released anybody. You know, it's just, I, I'm not sure what accounts for it, but it's an enormous blind spot. And, and it's true, uh, you know, across the states. You know, I should say there, you know, there are some governors who have done some things. And, you know, some of it may may surprise people that, you know, for example, Oklahoma, the governor there has, has granted a fair number of commutations, uh, letting people out earlier from their sentence in light of what's happening. And, you know, that's a Republican governor. Um, and, you know, we've seen a few others who are, who are trying to make an effort to have at least said that they would have releases, you know, places like Pennsylvania and New Jersey. But unfortunately, the announcements that they made haven't yet been followed by actual releases that match what they promised. So, you know, what we see when we look around the country is essentially really small numbers of people being released from these facilities. And so what ends up happening is they're crowded and the virus starts to spread and it starts to spread to the staff and it 
goes into the communities. And so it's really the situation that we would hope that we'd have governors getting ahead of it. But their efforts thus far have been really, you know, disappointing is the nicest way I could put it. Sure. And you said that, you know, this isn't partisan or it shouldn't be partisan. But of course, in this climate, everything everything's partisan just about, right? So, I mean, we can talk about that later. So one of the solutions that's being proposed is just what you hinted at is, you know, clemency or early releases. So how would that work exactly? Well, there's a couple options for governors. So a commutation would be a sentence reduction that's permanent, you know, basically saying, look, we know we gave you 10 years, but I, as the governor, am going to say the eight years you've currently served is enough and you're released and you're done. The other option that a governor has, um, and sometimes with commutations, the governor could just do that with the stroke of a pen, and other times they need to go through a board or some kind of process. So so that's actually a mixed set of options for governors. You know, here in New York, Governor Cuomo could do that with the stroke of a pen, but in other states, you do have to go through a board. The other option, and, and the one that might be the easiest one for a governor, would be what's called a reprieve. And that would be a temporary adjustment in someone's sentence, essentially saying, look, I'm going to let you out now until the crisis passes, but then you've got to come back and you've got to serve the rest of your sentence. So you'd still have people serving the totality of whatever it was they were sentenced to. It's just they're going to get a break in the middle so they don't get this virus and so they don't spread it to the community. And the idea behind a reprieve is effectively to deal with emergencies just like this, you know, basically recognizing sometimes you got to press pause on a sentence because circumstances overtake the situation that was in play when someone was sentenced. And so for reprieves, you know, we had a report through our center um, at NYU authored by Ben Notterman that goes through and lists how every governor could use the reprieve power to try to deal with this crisis. So so that's a tool that's available for just about every governor to come in and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to press pause, I'm going to release people temporarily, and then they have to report back when the crisis is over, which, you know, is, is really something that is not a huge upending of the status quo, but it seems like just the right fit for the emergency that we're facing. Right. So because I know that it differs from state to state, but you're saying that all governors in all states would at least have the power for reprieve. Just about. There's there's a few where the reprieve power might be limited, but just about all of them have that. And, you know, we, we have a report out that kind of does it state by state and shows what each state governor could do. Could these be overturned at the executive level? Could the Trump administration, do they have the authority to overturn something like that? I don't think they do, but I'll, I'll let you answer that. Yeah, no, you're correct. They do not. You know, this is purely a matter of state law if they're serving a state sentence. What state governors can't do is address the people within their state who are serving federal sentences. So, you know, we do have people who've been convicted of federal crimes and they are inside federal prisons. But of course, our federal prisons reside within particular states. You know, we have federal prisons in Washington state where you are, in New York, all throughout the country. And when there's an outbreak in a federal prison, there's nothing the governor can do about that because they are under the jurisdiction of the federal government, which means for those folks to be released, they would either need to be released by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, If President Trump gave them commutations or reprieves, he could do that. But the governors can't do anything about the federal prisoners within their state, only the, the people who are serving state sentences. So there are a couple of other options that your report mentions. You mentioned furloughs and compassionate releases, and those are presumably different. Like the furlough, I think you can go in and out. How would that work? 
Yeah. So the furloughs, um, again, you'd have to look state by state to see exactly what the authority is, but it's similar to the reprieve model, which is basically letting somebody out. And, and you could even view it as as still taking time off the sentence, but just serving it with certain conditions at home. You know, So kind of saying for you're going to be furloughed to a period of home confinement for part of your sentence now. Um, and it's specified in state law what is and isn't allowed. That actually turns out to be a, an option that is is pretty limited for this particular crisis in most places. The the process and the conditions that need to be met for it are pretty complicated in a lot of places. So I'm not sure if that's going to be, you know, it's not going to be a viable nationwide strategy, but in some places a furlough could work. And then compassionate release, again, varies by jurisdiction. How you get it, you know, I can give you the example of the federal system. So if someone was serving a federal sentence, the law allows that person to file a motion with a court for compassionate release, for example, based on something like this, you know, that they have a a health condition that makes them medically vulnerable to COVID-19. And so as a result, they want to be released from their sentence early. And we're seeing motions like that filed all around the country. You know, there's a debate on the on the federal level as to whether or not those people need to wait 30 days for the Bureau of Prisons to have a, a crack at it first before they can go into a court and do it. You know, that's kind of a jurisdictional waiver kind of argument that the courts are wrestling with. But basically, that model of going in and saying, look, you, you should release me because there's this medical condition or this medical emergency is something that's also, there's something like it in just about every state. Again, just varies based on kind of the procedural hoops you have to go through first in order to get it. Well, when, when you mentioned furlough, that sounds particularly risky to me because you have people going in and out of the population and out into the world. And is, is there some kind of requirement that they have a mandatory isolation period? Yeah, I mean, all these devices could be tailored to have conditions attached to them in order to maximize public safety. So it's not as if they're all or nothing devices where, you know, we have to just let people go without saying they need to take precautions. The release could be conditional on certain requirements. So those could include, you know, I've seen these in cases where um, people have been released, you know, an ankle monitor that requires that the person stay at home and they have this ankle monitor to make sure that they're complying with it. You know, and maybe they have to stay at home for 14 days you know, a period of self-quarantine or longer, or there's other conditions attached to what they have to do. And and that would all be, you know, I, I would assume that most people considering these kind of release mechanisms would want to be sure that that, that isolation practices, good isolation practices are, are put in place just to make sure that people aren't infected once somebody comes out. You know, ideally, you'd want to test them before they leave and then also just maintain that that 14-day buffer zone. All right. So what percentage, if we're talking about nationally, what percentage of the population would be affected by this, would be let out due to this? Uh, well, so it depends. You know, so if you if you imagine that we have an incarcerated population of, you know, right around 2.3 million people in America right now are in prisons and jails. And, you know, I don't think that anybody is saying let every single one of them out. So it's a question of, you know, who could be released safely? Um, and by safely, meaning safely such that they, they won't be spreading the disease once they're released and, you know, safely such that they're not going to commit 
you know, violent acts upon their release either, that they don't pose a danger to, to others. I think the populations that most people are focusing on right now, so the first category would be people who, if they stay in these facilities, are themselves particularly vulnerable to, to death and really serious consequences if they catch this. So that would be your population of folks who are older and the age cutoffs vary. You know, some people say older than 55, some people say 60, but we're basically getting at that older population that we know has higher death rates from COVID-19. And then the other would be people that have pre-existing health conditions that make them particularly vulnerable. You know, people that have serious lung problems, diabetes, um, you know, other things that we know from the medical health professionals make them vulnerable. So, you know, I don't have an absolute number of those folks, but, at, you know, as we said at the outset, there's a fairly large number of people who are older within within our prisons and jails. And so, you know, it, it's not an insignificant percentage of folks if we were to think about, about all of them. The other categories of people that should be thought of for release would be um, not necessarily because they themselves are particularly vulnerable, but, you know, just because we need to, to lower those numbers so that within the facility we can space people out so that we don't overwhelm the medical staff and there's enough resources to treat everybody. So just lowering numbers for the sake of lowering the numbers and getting social distance within the facility. You want to be thinking about the populations that make the most sense for release. So one group might be people who are already going to be released in the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, right? They're, they're at the end of their sentence already. And, you know, there's a, you know, what value is there in making them stick around for another month or two or three when by doing so, you know, they could potentially be crowding the space and thereby spreading the disease. So just, you know, let them out a little bit early. That's another group. Um, people who are there on like technical parole violations, you know, the only reason they've been put in the facility is, you know, they missed a curfew or they they failed a, a urine test, something that, you know, is not, is a technical parole violation and not, you know, the committing of a new crime. Get those folks out. The population of people who are in jails, most of those people are there pre-trial. They haven't been convicted of anything, you know, so really thinking about releasing large chunks of those folks, um, you know, unless they truly are posing a danger to others. But, you know, if they're just there because they were too poor to make their bail, you know, go ahead and get those folks out now. So those are the target populations that I've seen most places focusing on, um, you know, really low risk populations in terms of offending if they're released. And then, you know, the the flip side, the high risk population to really serious illness if they get this. Right. I think you made a really important point about not being able to make bail because those people have not been, they've only been accused. They haven't been convicted of anything. Right. So putting them in this population where they're more vulnerable to to catch this is actually kind of, you know, I mean, that's it's 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 bad. I mean, it's bad all around, but, you know, essentially it could be a death sentence. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it could be. Yeah, no, and I think that it's um, it's really important for people to remember that when the state incarcerates somebody, when the government takes over custody of someone, there is an obligation by the state to take care of that person, right? They're not they're not 
sentenced to illness and they're not, you know, detained and whatever happens while they're detained is, you know, just kind of luck of the draw. There's an actual obligation on the part of the state to make sure that their health is and safety is preserved. So if that can't be done, they need to be released, you know, and and, and when we're particularly talking about people who you know, these groups of people where the detention itself, you really kind of want to question in the first instance, you know, they're there pre-trial, they're there for a parole violation. You know, you do the cost benefit analysis to try to figure out, does it really make sense to keep those people detained? And, you know, I think you quickly come to the conclusion that it doesn't. So who makes those decisions as far as who is eligible for what and, you know, who stays in, right? Who stays in prison and who gets let out? So it depends on what mechanism of release we're talking about, you know, who's exercising what authority. If we were talking about, let's say, gubernatorial reprieve power, it would be the governor. You know, I would expect that a governor thinking of doing that, though, would probably want to get some input from the Department of Corrections to, you know, ask for lists of people that, you know, haven't had serious behavioral issues while they're incarcerated to make sure it's okay. You know, there, there certainly could be some safeguards that are put in place to make sure that people aren't just kind of released without thinking through to make sure there's a good release plan in place. But if it's it's the reprieve power, you know, it would be the governor. If it's compassionate release, it might be the Department of Corrections or potentially a judge, depending upon the legal framework that we're talking about. The other thing to keep in mind is, you know, there's kind of our existing population that's that's in there right now, but, but every day we're still seeing new people arrested for things. You know, it's not as if the world has completely come to a standstill. So there's also a question on the part of prosecutors, who are they asking to have detained going forward? So they have discretion too to, you know, to say, look, this person can 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 stay free pending their trial. So we're really talking about a number of actors in the system with some discretion, depending upon the release mechanism from prosecutors to judges to corrections officials to governors. So as I'm listening to this, I guess the the thing that keeps coming to mind is that this sounds really costly. You know, you've got, let's assume you release a certain percentage of people and they have to stay in a place for isolation. So you have to have places to house these people. You have to have attorneys involved and just the decision making process. I mean, am I right? Is it costly? And, And secondly, would it be a part of a relief package? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's it it varies in terms of kind of how procedurally costly it is and also just kind of actual dollars and cents costly in terms of what it entails. Um, some of these cases are actually, though, pretty easy because when you look, you find that this person can be released to their families. You know, their families have a room for this person. They can go home and they can socially isolate, you know, in a basement. You know, they can go live with somebody who's not uh, doesn't have a compromised immune system and and the, it, there's there's a place waiting for them. So we have some people like that where it's really just a question of getting them out, but they have a place to go. Then we have, you know, a not insignificant number of people where it actually is a little bit more difficult to think about where they're going to go, particularly if we're worried at all that they may spread the infection. And so if they need a period of, of quarantine before they can be safely released, you know, that gets a little bit trickier about where they go if there's kind of not a ready-made home waiting for them. There, it may be that what the state needs to do is, you know, rent out one of these empty 
hotels or motels, you know, that are just sitting vacant, you know, rent them out and use them for this purpose. That's something that is certainly feasible and has been done for other populations. And they could do that here. They could have designated shelter space for folks in this position. I I know that some jurisdictions are basically trying to move people around within their correction system so that they have some correctional facilities or wings of those correctional facilities that are just for the people kind of waiting out their 14 days before they then go home. Those models are are varying in terms of how sensible they are. <laughs> you know, so, so in some of them, um, you know, it may be that actually that's a terrible idea because where they're being held waiting for the 14 days to pass makes them more likely to get it just because of the way that the architecture of the place looks. In others, it's, it's actually more of a sensible alternative because they can kind of be there until until they're released. So I think it does vary, but there are certainly thousands of thousands of cases around the country where a person could be released back to their families, you know, back to their loved ones who are, are waiting for them. And it, you know, it's not a question of finding a space for them. There is a space already available for them. So, you know, their, their attorney in a filing or they themselves can make clear that there, there is a release plan in place. So, you know, the thing that another question that comes to mind is that if we can do this because of an outbreak and we can let people out of the prison population who aren't a danger to society, who, you know, may be eligible for release early. Why can't we just do that anyway? Yeah, it does lay bare <laughs> kind of the um, why are some of these people in there in the first place? You know, I, and I, I certainly won't lie about my own priors, which is, you know, these are some of the very same populations that I have been arguing we should really be thinking about releasing anyway. You know, I, I think as a society, we really need to be asking ourselves, why do we have so many people incarcerated in their 70s? You know, we're, we're turning our prisons into medical care facilities. You know, these are not people who present a danger to the public. The recidivism rate for folks who are that old, you know, approaches zero. And so incarcerating people past that point really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And and frankly, it wasn't like there was a lot of thought put into those sentences in the first place. You know, some of them, they're serving like a 50-year sentence for a drug offense just because some legislative body randomly passed a 50-year mandatory minimum, you know, in the 1980s. And and here we are. Um, And it wasn't like they did a study saying that was the right sentence for someone who committed that crime or, you know, that's the way to get public safety. You know, nothing of the kind. It was really just kind of crazy political rhetoric. So so I do think it's, it's showing us some of the very faults in our system that would be true even without the pandemic. You know, same with the pretrial detention population. Why is someone incarcerated just because they can't afford bail. You know, we shouldn't be imprisoning people just because they don't have the money when, you know, their counterpart who commits the exact same crime can get out just because they have access to money. So so I think you're right that this is really, you know, it, it's, it's showing in sharp relief so many of the problems we have. And I'll just add to that, I think it's really exposing for people how horrible prison conditions themselves are. You know, it, it's one thing when you send someone, you know, away, if they're, if it's not you and it's not your loved one, you know, you may not know what it's like inside these facilities. But, you know, I've talked to so many people who think I'm lying when I say, no, they, they have to buy their soap. <laughs> you know, they, they, yeah. they won't let them have, you know, the, the number of showers they can take is dramatically limited. And there is no social distancing and there is no adequate health care. And when they do need to see somebody, they're charged, you know, that's part of the charge of their stay. And, and it's just, I think it opens up a world for people 
you know, I'm actually hoping it'll help educate some people who otherwise weren't aware of some of these things that we really need to rethink what we do when we incarcerate people because, you know, there are 95% of all the people who are incarcerated today are getting out anyway. You know, it's not like they're locked up forever. And so we really should be thinking about while they're detained, what's happening to them? Are we are we making it more likely when they come out that they're going to be more likely to lead law-abiding lives than when they came in? And in so many places, we're setting them up to fail. They're violent places. They're, they're places where they're treated horribly. You know, they're put into solitary confinement and it may lead them to have mental health issues. So, you know, all of those things suggest that we don't really do a very good job thinking about what happens when somebody comes back out. You know, and when you get a situation like this one where there's an urgency um, where we're thinking, well, we we need to release a lot of people now, I I think it really makes people focus on some of those issues that otherwise maybe get a little bit lost in the shuffle. Right. And I think that's a really important conversation to have. I actually think about that a lot because, you know, I mean, it's a whole other different episode, but I was thinking about, you know, what is the purpose of our prison? Is it to keep the the rest of the population safe by separating people who are dangerous or is it punitive? Right. And if it isn't punitive, you know, then why do we need to have things like you can only take up one shower a week? You know, and the second thing is I think there's this myth about, you know, who is actually in the prison population. Like everyone isn't Charles Manson, right? I mean, there's this idea that everyone who's in prison is is dangerous and that's just not true. Like you said, there could be someone who had a drug offense in the 80s and that was the only one they had. But because there there was some inane, you know, 50 year mandatory sentence, they're still in prison and they're in their 80s. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me when I talked about these issues, well, you know what? If you if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. You know, including by the way with COVID nineteen, like somehow that's just part of the bargain when someone decides to commit a crime that they might be subject to a deadly virus with no appropriate protections against it. And and you know, I think the only way that I can wrap my mind around somebody saying that is. I think it's, you're right. It's like, they are just thinking this is Hannibal Lecter and Charles Manson. And, you know, so whatever happens to them, these are like hardened serial killers and so be it. And, and I think it would really help for people to understand who we're talking about in terms of these 2.3 million people. And I think when, when it's your friend, when it's your loved one, when it's your mother and your father and your sister and your brother, you know, you know that, you know that because you know those people and you know, you know, for some of them, the offense itself was, was really relatively minor. You know, we have a lot of people in there for, you know, selling drugs because they had an addiction and they were supporting their own addiction. And, and even for people who commit acts that are more serious, that commit acts of violence, um, they're not the same people that committed those acts. You know, over time they have, they have changed, they've grown up, um, particularly for people who do stupid things when they're younger, like we all have. It's It's just some people's stupid acts when they're younger and they're around other people turn violent. And, you know, does that mean that they should 40 years later stay inside, locked up inside a facility and, you know, particularly now in the face of a pandemic? So, you know, the idea that somehow whatever you you forfeit all sense of proportionality and all sense of rights when you commit any crime at any age for whatever reason, which I think is actually a pervasive view that's out there in the public. I think the only way people can hold that is 
basically just in, in ignorance of not really looking closely at the people that we're talking about. And I think if they spent a day inside of a prison and talked to people and met people and heard their stories, I don't think they would, they would think that, you know, I think that's just the product that we get from, you know, TV shows that make it seem like those are the kinds of people in there and the sensationalized media stories that focused on the very worst crimes that are committed. But if people got a little closer and really learned about who we're talking about, I, I really think they would see this for the horrific tragedy that it, that it is, and they'd have a greater sense of urgency that we have to get these people out. You know, what I think is amazing is that, we, you know, we have one of the largest percentage of incarcerated people, yet so few people can have empathy or understand in a rational way what's really happening. That's that's one point. And the second point, how many times have people mentioned Charles Manson or Ted Bundy to you? That must happen pretty often. Yeah, you get those. You get um, Hitler. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. sometimes it's it's we got to borrow from like the worst historical figure imaginable to say, you know, what about, uh, you know, what about him? What about Saddam Hussein? You know what? And I think you don't want to set your prison policy based on Hitler. You know, you want to set your <laughs> policies based on the people who are actually committing these crimes. And and to really think hard about the fact that 95% of these people are coming back out. You know, I, I try to tell people to think about it a little bit more like they think about their credit card bill. Um, you know, so you have someone who does something that that is bad, you know, and I don't want to deny that people do horrible things. And, and I'm not arguing for abolition. I'm not an abolitionist. I understand there are people who do horrible things. And, and it's important that they be detained because they are, in fact, a risk to others, right? They've done something and they're a risk. But the real question to ask is, so you've kind of have someone who's done something, and you're you're dealing with the problem by giving them a sentence, but 95% of these people are coming back out there, they're not given a life sentence, you know, we haven't decided because, they, you know, they hit somebody else or they stabbed somebody else that they should be locked up forever. They're detained for some period of time. So it's it's like a credit card. You've dealt with the problem right now. You know, you've you you've bought yourself time. You have bought yourself the length of their sentence. But you really need to ask, well, what are you doing during that time to make sure when the person comes back out that you've dealt with whatever the underlying issue is. And you know, for so many of the people that we're talking about, there are just real structural problems that led to the crime in the first place. They, you know, they have they have serious mental health issues. They have addictions. They have physical health problems that lead them to take drugs, which then, you know, lead them to commit additional crimes in order to pay for their drugs. And, you know, as you start to peel back the layers, you realize that what we really should be trying to think about is, is getting at those underlying problems. You know, for some people, it's just a question of growing up. They just need to age out of it. You know, they are, they're more impulsive and they're more susceptible to peer pressure when they're younger. And as they get older, they're going to just kind of age out. But, you know, for others, there are some underlying issues there that we should be trying to tackle. And, and we should be using their period of, of state custody to deal with those. But, you know, all too often instead, it's just warehousing. You know, it's just kind of getting that extra five years and waiting it out and so hoping somehow magically that things will be better when time passes. So, you know, there's a there's a way in which our, our kind of entire system of incarceration really deserve some serious scrutiny for improvement. And, you know, I don't know if the pandemic is the time to do it, but it's certainly the time at the very least to not make things worse and at least to get out the most vulnerable people and make sure that these prisons and jails aren't places that are going to end up spreading the virus to everybody else. So let's just talk about timing, right? Because, you know, 
as much as this should not be a partisan issue, it probably is a partisan issue. 2020 is one of the most important elections. It is the most important elections of our lifetimes here in America. And I just don't see Democrats making a move like this this year, right? Because what will happen is they'll be painted as, you know, these bleeding heart liberals and 50% of the states, I think, have Democratic governors and, a, and roughly 50% have Republican governors. And, you know, it it probably will be used against them. I mean, I'm not so sure. Um, and and you know, here's, here's some reasons why, you know, if you ask yourself, why would it be that the ad buy that the Trump administration made in the Super Bowl when they could have highlighted any issue they wanted about his presidency. And they used that Super Bowl ad to talk about his release of Alice Marie Johnson, his commutation of her sentence. You know, I mean, that ad was misleading for a whole host of reasons because he was basically able to create an impression that he'd done more than he has. But, you know, it was a very effective ad in the sense that he touted himself as a criminal justice reformer. And so he has made the political calculation that there are votes to be had by being a reformer, by getting people out of prison. And so much so that that was the Super Bowl ad. And so I think if we look at that on the, you know, and that's that's a Republican. Um, and when we look on the Democratic side, the people who were running for the nomination, it was a real liability for people to have been seen as kind of old school, tough on crime incarcerators, you know, that it was a real problem for Kamala Harris. It was a problem for Amy Klobuchar. They, you know, they were asked about their prior past as prosecutors. Um, and it wasn't an asset in the way that it used to be for people running for office. And, and I think, you know, there's a, cu- a couple of reasons why I think that's the case now. One is just numbers. It's not just that we have 2.3 million people currently incarcerated. Um, you know, we have about 7 million people under some kind of criminal supervision. And according to Families Against Mandatory Minimum, we have one out of every two families has one of the family members who has been incarcerated. So when you start talking about that many people in America with personal experience of incarceration, of interaction with uh, law enforcement and criminal prosecution, those people get that we have overdone it and that there's a need for reform. And they feel strongly about it. And it's an issue for them that is important. That's a lot of potential voters. You know, the second reason is this is an urgent matter of racial justice, because this is not falling kind of proportionately across all aspects of our population. You know, it's disproportionately hitting people of color. And in those communities in particular, the idea of a kind of business as usual, tough on crime politician, you know, that that's also seen as an insensitivity to racial justice because of how hard it's hit those communities. And, you know, again, that's an important voting block. It's an important part of America. And I think politicians need to think really seriously about that. And then, you know, lastly, the spread of this virus is something that people are going to be held accountable for. And so if you don't tackle the places where it's likely to spread, and you have outbreaks in those places, you have a public health crisis. So, you know, you might want to avoid the kind of 
one in a million person who's released early and commits a crime and gets on your tabloid newspaper. But you also have to be thinking about what happens if you don't release people and you have a real crisis inside, let's say, your rural prison in a community where lots of the people work at that prison um, as correction staff. They get infected. They then take that infection home. Now their families, their communities infected. And these are rural communities that don't have good hospital care. They just don't because that has been decimated over the years and with budget cuts. So now you're talking about places where you could have really high uh, outbreaks and deaths as a result of this. And that's a political liability. So, you know, I think for all those reasons, it's, it's not the case that it's absolutely the safest course to do nothing. You know, I think there's a real political risk, you know, above and beyond the humanitarian one to, to not doing something about this. Rachel Barco, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much for your work on this. It's really, really important. Oh, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Electorette is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorette, please help The Electorette grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorette on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorette is by following The Electorette on social media. That's at Electorette on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>